Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic. In each podcast, we aim to provide relevant and helpful information for healthcare professionals involved in cardiac, vascular, and thoracic specialties. Enjoy. Welcome to our uh, Cleveland Clinic Vascular Surgery podcast again. My name is Lee Kirksey. I'm the Vice Chairman of our Vascular Surgery Department. I'm here today with David Hardy, our Associate Program Director in our Vascular Fellowship Training, as well as Frank Caputo, the Director of our Vascular Fellowship and Residency Training Program. And today we're going to discuss the topic of mesenteric ischemia. Mesenteric ischemia, and we'll discuss kind of divided in the components of acute mesenteric ischemia and chronic mesenteric ischemia. And there's some vagaries in terms of how we diagnose these patients. And, you know, since we're talking to cardiologists and primary care physicians, what are some thoughts that you have about that patient perhaps that you see in your office that comes in with the diagnosis of chronic mesenteric ischemia? What, do you, what are the historical features that you get that kind of tip you off? There's some art to diagnosing it, I believe. Well, I think like any patient that, you know, you get referred, the first thing you want to do is start from the beginning with a good history and physical, right? So with chronic mesenteric ischemia, what you're looking for is that chronic weight loss, you know, over time. She's been or he's been endoscopied up and down and tests everywhere and no one can just seem to pinpoint it. And, you know, someone finally orders an ultrasound or a CAT scan for some reason and there's calcifications on it. Yeah. And they refer you that chronic mesenteric. And so what I, first thing I do is I do a history and physical and you find they've usually been given a run around a little yeah. bit. And then once they're in your office, I start off with a duplex, yeah. just a baseline duplex and see what's going on with those mesenteric vessels. What, what I heard in there and what I want to draw out is even if they have mesenteric stenosis by ultrasound and you do a history and physical and they've had 15 weight pounds of weight gain, no weight loss, you probably start to look around and make sure they've had the basic things and upper endoscopy, peptic ulcer disease, biliary disease. You look for other chronic medical conditions, which by far are more common, Absolutely. right? Especially in this patient population that we're dealing with. So, yeah, like you, you said, if the story doesn't fit, it yeah. may not be mesenteric ischemia and it may be something else, absolutely. So, so how do you co-evaluate those patients? Because a lot of times they, they'll come into your office with the diagnosis already made, having no previous workup in the GI system. So how do you co-evaluate these patients? Co-evaluate. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming we're still talking about the patient that doesn't quite fit. Maybe they've gained weight or maybe they haven't lost any weight and they've yeah. had this abdominal pain for a while. Yes. So, yeah, these are patients that I would uh, work with a primary care physician um, or whomever sent the patient to us, have gastro or gastroenterology or our GI doctor see them or a, or a gastrointestinal surgeon take a, take a look at them so we can make sure they have had that upper scope, the lower scope. Um, if they have a CT scan, Sometimes there may be pinpoints on there about why they're having abdominal pain. Um, that's, I mean, that's probably the biggest thing is just making sure those things are rolled out. Yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you that I'm challenged to, not that I disbelieve the patient or discount the primary care doctor's diagnosis, but I'm challenged to believe the significance of a mesenteric stenosis that is clearly there, absent some degree of weight loss or food fear that's very consistent and, you know, I, I kind of want to follow this patient over some period of time. That is to say that I won't jump to intervene upon a patient because I see a 
80% mesenteric stenosis on someone who's had some vagary of abdominal discomfort. I, I'm probably going to see that patient back maybe six, eight weeks, a month after, after they've had some type of workup, maybe had some other, you know, peptic ulcer disease treated, not jumping to intervene on that patient. And even short of that, there are other things, kind of the, the zebras we call them, like median arcuate ligament syndrome or... Um, yeah, I mean, that's the one that kind of sticks out in my mind that could be causing some abdominal pain. I mean, these are things we have to look for to see. But if you had that, you're talking about if you have image evidence that the vessels are occluded. The, the SMA is high-grade stenosis. They have a 10-pound weight gain. I'm probably not jumping to do anything. I'm going to kind of have a little cautious waiting approach. So diagnostic, you already said you get an ultrasound. We have a very good vascular lab and you touched upon the idea that they're not only looking for mesenteric artery occlusive disease, but they'll also look for median arcuate ligament syndrome. Why don't you tell folks what they might see in diagnosing median arcuate ligament? That another lab that's not familiar with how to diagnose it. Sure, yeah. It's, it's, it's not as common as you would think, but after everything else, and it really is almost like after everything's been, been ruled out, um, sometimes people have median arcuate ligament syndrome or mouths I may use from here on. But an ultrasound would show some narrowing on a uh, celiac artery. The SMA is likely to be open, but we have those patients either stand up or take a breath in, and you may actually see that uh, those velocities, or you may actually see that artery open up on the ultrasound. So, so it's a, um, so it's a, it's a variation, and it kind of opens and closes with breathing, and that's just how that diaphragm interacts with the blood vessel and in simple terms. And interestingly about mouths, it's really not a vascular problem. It's yeah. more of, people are alluding it's more the neurogenic problem of having the celiac nerve. So um, despite having those nerves released and whether or not you still have compression of the artery, really the, the benefit has actually been shown that just releasing it, those nerves laparoscopically is what's really the benefit to those. And so you know, we evaluate median arcuate ligament we treat managed median arcuate ligament syndrome. So what are the vascular, what's the additional vascular workup that you two do when you have a patient? Now you're convinced they have chronic mesenteric ischemia. You get your ultrasound, celiac is out, SMA is 90%. What do, you, what do you do next? I go to CAT scan. You go to CAT scan? I do. Because you want to see what kind of disease you're dealing with, right? A lot of times mesenteric disease is not originate at the blood vessel, it originates from the aorta and it spills over into the origin, right? So you want to evaluate your aorta, how calcified it is, are we going to be able to potentially do this endovascular or do you have to do this surgical? If we have the intent to treat, what are going to be my options? Do I have to do some type of aortic procedure on top of it? So. Yeah. I agree. I would, I would start with the CAT scan. I'd probably also thinking just the full just uh, the full patient thinking about their carotid arteries, take a look at yeah. those. Uh, you know, after Dr. Caputo mentioned a full history and physical, that includes physical exam of the pulses in the arms and legs to make sure there are good signals there. So that would pre probably be what I did in addition to this. I, I was at a meeting last year when someone a little bit older than us uh, stood up and said, I, I, don't, I can't imagine why you guys need CAT scans for everything. And as one of our former colleagues has said, I've never been disappointed in getting a CAT scan because it gives you so much information to see any adjacent disease, any concurrent disease. It gives you the morphology 
of the visceral vessels, if you have this circumferential calcified SMA lesion, yeah, you're probably going to see that on ultrasound, but there's so many findings where the, a woman with a small visceral vessel that you look at and you say, man, this is not going to do very well with endovascular treatment, and you start thinking about open treatment. So I think it just gives you some idea and gives you a greater deal of certainty when you head into your procedure about what you're going to do and expedites that treatment. I agree. I think, I mean, I think it's just like taking a trip and back in the, back when I was a kid, we used maps and not GPS devices or phones, but you don't, I mean, getting a CT scan gives you a map of the patient's vessels and you have a plan going in. You kind of already know exactly what you're going to do in that treatment. You're not yeah. making it up while you're in there. So Absolutely. I think it, it also just helps you kind of take care of the, um, and, and, and even uh, avoid some of the complications you could get into. And fortunately, with our CAT scan unit within our department, it doesn't inconvenience the patient. They come in, they see us, they get their ultrasound, they get their CAT scan within our department. They don't have to run around. They don't have to come back on another day because they had to go someplace else within the hospital. So it makes it very convenient, our, our layout. So you have the diagnosis. You're convinced that they have. They've had 15, 20 pounds weight loss. Heaven forbid they're one of the severe forms of chronic mesenteric ischemia and, you know, they're wasted away by the time they get to see you. What are your thoughts about how you approach these people in terms of are we an endovascular first practice? Do we offer all therapies? I mean, I offer all therapies, right? So I think that patient that is malnourished, that is overly thin, they do very well with endovascular first because it does two things. One, um, it's minimally invasive and you don't necessarily um, compromise them too much physiologically. And two, it allows them to build up so you could potentially do an open operation um, in the future. In terms of a patient that is healthy and unable and able to, what I think, can undergo um, an open operation, I think that that's the way to go at first. Um, an open anti-grade bypass versus, um, you know, it's been shown to be very durability. And there's actually some data to suggest now that uh, multiple endovascular attempts may compromise your open procedure. So, um, and although that hasn't been really teased out yet, that if a patient can tolerate an open operation, I think that's the way to go at first. So, and I, and I'll say this is going back to the point about CAT scan. This is where CAT scan really comes in because if you have that supercelic aorta, which is a, a calcific shell, and you see that lesion, which is eccentric, it's good diameter, and you know you can get a pretty durable result with an endovascular approach, that's probably going to guide you down. And, and it goes back to everything we talked about, tailoring. We can offer different therapies. We're very comfortable with each of those therapies, and you tailor the therapy for the patient, right? So endovascular, you're going to approach this patient endovascular. And there's some controversy within the literature and some various publications uh, describing covered stent versus bare metal stent. So talk about that maybe. Yeah, I think that's controversy in our literature. That's controversy among colleagues. Um, and, and we've published some papers, some of our institutions that are that are similar to us are published uh, to suggest if you do this endovascular and use a stent there we have a couple of different types of stents and one of them simply has a covering on it and one of them is a bare metal stent that opens up um, you know I, I think people uh, have their own preference and what some of the papers have suggested that maybe covered stents have shown um, more promise than using bare metal stents um, and and uh, 
but I, but I wouldn't say it's the law yet, and I still use bare metal stents for a lot of my endovascular procedures at this time uh, of a mesenteric segment. So for the uh, non-interventionalists and those folks that are involved with diagnosing these patients, perhaps describe to them uh, what the say what the Mayo paper as as an example showed in terms of bare metal versus covered uh, stents in terms of primary um, patency as well as re recurrence of disease and symptomatic free yeah, I think, survival. I think that's what you're, you're referring to, the, the Mayo paper, is that the covered stents seem to um, do better, um, provide a more durable long-term um, patency. The vessel stays open a little bit longer. Um, we think that um, you know, less interventions uh, chronically is what they showed in their paper, I believe. And um, just, I think long-term outcomes are better than using bare metal stents uh, when comparing the two groups. And why do, why, how do you explain that to someone just in a very simplistic fashion, the bare metal versus the covered stent in terms of recurrence and disease recurrence pattern, the pattern of recurrence? Maybe Frank can so, answer that so the I way. Think when you look at bare metal stents, a lot of times you look at a matrix, like a, think of like a, um, a cyclone fence or a chain link fence. You still have all the space in between, so a lot of times the disease can still come through that matrix or that chain link. The thing about covered stents, imagine having a covered, like a vinyl fence. Nothing can come real through. When the wind hits the vinyl fence, nothing's coming through. And it goes around it. So then you can start getting turbulence or something at the ends of it. So that you might get disease at the ends of it. Interestingly, if you look at our paper, our data here just recently published, it's not so much the stent type, but it's actually how the stent is placed. I mentioned before it's a spillover plaque, or the plaque originates in the aorta. So the key, the real key to mesenteric or endovascular repair of mesenteric vessels is actually having that stent come back into the aorta a little bit and flaring it or making it big to really counteract that spillover plaque. You want to have appropriate sizing, not undersizing. It's just like Goldilocks, not too big, not too small, just right. But you really want to have that proximal flared into the aorta. And that really is what's, what we have shown to be the, one of the most important things. Exactly. Normal, normal to normal, yep. basically, right? So if we can create an endovascular conduit by covering the inflow spillover disease into a preferably a large mm -hmm. distal normal arterialized segment, that patient's going to get a fairly good result, provided they're a non-smoker, right? We tell everyone up front that no matter what we do, whether it's bypass or endovascular treatment, if you're a smoker, your rate of recurrence and failure is, is higher. And unfortunately, patients that develop visceral disease and panvascular disease frequently are smokers. And so that's I agree. Awesome. And I think, yeah, I've had a hard time articulating that, but that's exactly why I still tend to use covered stent or bare metal stents because I think the issue is just not treating from normal to normal vessel when you look at these studies. And that's why I'm still kind of behind the curve there. Femoral approach, brachial approach, and use of IVUS. Um, I think it all depends. I think femoral approach is, is good. Brachial approach is, is just as good. It all depends on how the vessel comes off of the aorta. Again, the CAT scan helps you with that. And if you have a severely angulated blood vessel, because it points downward somewhat, it's just harder to come from the femoral. I think m the majority of the time I come from the arm, the brachial artery. Um, and then um, as far as using IVUS, um, if I have a really good angiographic result, I don't see the need in using IVUS at this time. But, um, but if, it, if there's any question, I don't think there's a problem. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm arm, I mean, you're dealing with two downward vessels, I'm armed probably 70% of the time. If they're coming off flush or, you know, the guy has, or the person has calcified arm vessels, I'll struggle, I'll, I'll go through the femoral approach without right. a problem. I also think IVUS is good because it lets you see that normal to normal. A lot of times you'll put a stent in and because of the calcium or whatever reason, you'll, you won't be able to see 100%, but, but that IVUS really lets you see how that stent is opposed, whether or not you have flattered enough, are you in the aorta enough? So I think, I think the IVUS really helps there. I, I think when you extrapolate, and clearly there are different uh, vascular beds, but when you extrapolate from the coronary literature for outcomes with IVUS guided stent placement, largely related to sizing and total coverage of disease, we can extrapolate that, hey, if you have a non-calcified vessel and you get good apposition, and I think people underdilate frequently, uh, frequently uh, with, with failure modes. We see it in all the vascular beds, but um, dilating to the appropriate diameter, some people suggesting that one should be more aggressive than undersizing because undersizing clearly contributes to uh, failure modes. My preference is brachial access for occlusions when we're treating a chronic total because I believe I get better pushability using a guide catheter from the brachial approach with a downward blood vessel. But I think, as you said, it's dealer's choice and it's what, what we're comfortable with. Um, and then surveillance for these folks. So you stent them, get a good result, dual antiplatelet monotherapy, um, chronic anticoagulation, NOAC, what, what's your post-intervention management? So it's interesting because there's some data come out that some of these NOACs might be better for peripheral vascular disease and maybe potentially um, in other vascular beds. You know, you're dealing with patients with compromised vascular beds throughout their entire body, usually when they have mesenteric ischemia. So I usually recommend dual antiplatelet therapy for these um, at least a year um, just to really try to um, solidify those stents and make sure that we're um, they remain patent. Surveillance-wise, um, I pretty much do my one, three, six months, and then every six months thereafter. And the most important thing for me, I don't really, you know, ultrasound and stents, you know, kind of a mixed bag, there's no really the great literature on it, stents patent. Um, but seeing how they're doing clinically, are they gaining weight? Are they doing okay? Have they, are they starting to thrive where they were failing to thrive before? Um, and if you start seeing that turn around and start getting worse again, it may be worth, um, doing an angio versus CAT scan. So I, I, I do them clinically as well as ultrasound as well. So who do you tell up front that you are less likely to get a long-term durable result? We've already alluded to one group in the uh, failure of smoking cessation, the tobacco abuse, but any other anatomies or yeah, I think the patients, and, and again, the CT scan comes back, the ones that I see fail so frequently are the ones with the very long lesions and um, chronic occlusions, and we're not talking about where you can get a wire in and there's a little 90% blockage, but the ones that are 100% blocked and, uh, and, and a long length, um, those are the ones that tend to fail moreover. Um, and I think even with good apposition and good treatment, those may even be the ones that Dr. Caputo alluded to earlier, if they're young and healthy, may end up with an open surgery and do better than trying to uh, manipulate the vessel and cause some poor outcome. And lose some domain. Yeah. Correct. And I also think you got to remember there's other diseases out there besides smoking. So when I start seeing diabetes or the microvascular disease, I start seeing end-stage renal disease, you know, when, that, when everything is calcified, your outcomes are not going to be as good. And also you look at some of the vasculitis or some of the um, vasculitis, um, they may not do as well as well because distally they're already kind of having issues. So I, I kind of 
look at all that, but I agree, those are the patients that you look long and hard to see if there's a good open operation because the more you start dwindling away that proximal mice-size aorta, um, I'm sorry, artery, the distal might be not any better. Absolutely. So, so let's, let's wrap up with maybe discussing really quick, it's a little bit different process, but involving the visceral vessels, acute mesenteric ischemia. As a quaternary center, we see patients with acute mesenteric, mesenteric ischemia, whether that's from thromboembolic disease or insight to disease. So maybe give the scenario of the 60-year-old uh, patient, atrial fibrillation, come into the hospital, transferred when you're on call with abdominal pain, and by CAT scan has thrombus at the origin of the SMA with known atrial fibrillation, abdominal pain. General surgery, seeing that patient, how do you decide, how do you manage that patient, what order, what's the sequencing? Yes, I think the most important part, and we teach all our trainees, and uh, is heparin. So these patients that we have a good sense that, that it's from likely AFib, a clot in the heart, or some embolic source. And um, I mean, heparin is the first thing that you need to start, even in the emergency room before they get transferred to us. Um, and once those patients are on heparin, um, they get transferred to us. Uh, the things we have to think about is how do we get that clot out of that blood vessel? And um, I, think, I think probably 10 years ago, we would have all um, probably 100% cut down and pull the clot out with uh, some type of balloon catheter. Um, I think nowadays we have a lot more endovascular techniques where we can still do the same process where we access uh, the arm or a leg blood vessel and maybe suck out that thrombus or, um, or use some type of clot-busting medicine depending on how severe the patient is. Yeah. And that all depends on kind of their abdominal exam. So their all. abdominal exam is benign, their lactate is normal, um, you get a wire across the lesion, suction aspiration, thrombolysis. You know, there's, there's some proponents of thrombolysis suggesting that it's kind of like an acute coronary syndrome. If you reperfuse this patient that's stable and has minimal abdominal pain, then you can get a similar result to doing an acute open exploratory laparotomy. Yes. I also think the key also is to have a... Um, on your radar though when they come to the emergency room because much like a heart attack is ischemia of the heart, this is actually like an intestinal attack. It's an attack of your intestines. And a lot of times someone will be in severe pain and you go examine the patient and they won't be tender. And that's uh, sine qua non of this um, condition. It's called pain out of proportion to exam. But that's one thing you gotta have because it is a surgical emergency and I think um, the good thing about places like here and in our network, you can die. People are pretty attuned to advanced problems. Yeah. So, and I, I think the, you know, looking at the multidisciplinary approach that many of our disease processes have, especially when they come in this acute situation, uh, working with our general surgeons, either we'll access, we'll uh, treat the thrombus, whether it's suction or whether it's a chronic atherosclerotic lesion which we can dilate angioplasty and stent and get reperfusion, bring our general surgery team in to either laparoscope or do a exploratory laparotomy. I think it's, we commonly tell our trainees that just because the patient has a normal lactate, normal metabolics, that may just because they're, they're densely ischemic and the cells are not being reperfused, and once these people get revascularized, all of a sudden they get sick, and you find that they have some dead gut. So it's very important to have excellent general surgeons surrounding our our team. So that's kind of a rundown of.
chronic mesenteric ischemia and acute mesenteric ischemia from my partners here within the vascular surgery department at the Cleveland Clinic. I appreciate you tuning in today and we'll return with other editions of the Cleveland Clinic Vascular Surgery Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and share the link on iTunes.